0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Moxie Labouche, voiceover artist. That's right. In addition to talking on the podcast, I'm available to lend my voice to any corporate video, audiobook, narration, or other product you have. Just drop me an email, moxie at My listeners get a special half-off rate. You say potato, I say dangerous tuber that people only eat in the face of actual starvation. You say tomato, I say a poison apple from the mysterious new world that's killing the aristocracy. We can hardly imagine a salad without tomatoes or a trip to the drive through without fries, but it took Europeans nearly two centuries to believe that these foods, both members of the nightshade family of plants, were healthy or even safe to consume. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. We're doing something a little different today with this particular Greatest Hits. I've gone back into the archives to the very beginning of Your Brain on Facts and brought up one of the original scripts, added a fresh section to it, and am re-recording it knowing what I know now about how to handle my sound editing. So for those who have never heard this or wish it sounded better the first time, here you go. The lumpy, dirty potato spread slowly through Europe after being brought back from South America to Spain in 1570. The Swiss believed that potato consumption would lead to infection of the lymph nodes. The Burgundy region of France outlawed their cultivation altogether. Some thought that spuds would cause sterility, while others thought that they caused rampant sexuality. We have Antoine-Augustin Parmentier to thank for our fries, mash, and hash browns. Forced to subsist on potatoes almost exclusively as a prisoner of the Prussians during the Seven Years' War, Parmentier not only survived, but found that he thrived. Changing public opinion was an uphill battle, however. Even serving potatoes to the king, who suffered no ill effects, wasn't enough. Parmentier's genius stroke was to make people think, They weren't allowed to have potatoes. He had his land filled with potato plots and hired guards to protect it. Guards who were instructed to turn a blind eye to all theft and accept any and all bribes so that the public would steal the potatoes and grow them on their own land. After a time, Parmentier dismissed the guards, and as he expected, the locals raided the land and stole almost every potato plant growing there. By the following year, nearly every farmer in the region was growing their own potatoes. The potato's geographical and botanical cousin, the tomato, fared better initially. Spain, Portugal, and Italy welcomed it with open mouths. The rest of Europe, not as much. Tomatoes were blamed for health problems in in the upper-class people who were willing to eat them. The wealthy ate from pewter plates, a metal high in lead, The acid from the tomatoes would leach the lead from the plates, resulting in sometimes fatal lead poisoning. Even the American colonies of the 1700s viewed tomatoes as a curious ornamental plant. Making matters worse, the tomato hornworm, a conspicuously ugly three or four inch long green worm with a red horn on its rear end that can ruin tomato crops, was considered to be independently poisonous And as dangerous as a rattlesnake. In reality, you've probably seen them in your own garden. You can just pick them off by hand to dispatch them in whatever manner you see fit. The apocryphal champion of the wolf peach, as tomatoes were sometimes known, was New Jersey gentleman farmer Robert Gibbon Johnson. According to the Salem Historical Society, in 1820, around 2,000 people were jammed into the town square Johnson emerged from his mansion and headed up Market Street toward the courthouse, dressed in his usual black suit with white ruffles, black shoes and gloves, tricorn hat, and cane. At the courthouse steps he spoke to the crowd. To help dispel the tall tales and fantastic fables that you have been hearing, and to prove to you that it is not poisonous, I am going to eat one right now. There was not a sound as he dramatically brought the tomato to his lips and took a bite. A woman in the crowd screamed and fainted, but no one paid her any attention. They were all watching Johnson as he took one bite after another. He raised both arms, the crowd cheered, and the firemen's band blared a song. He's done it, they shouted. He's alive. We know that tomatoes and potatoes come from Central and South America, but lots of foods don't come from where we've been led to believe. Let's go to a lightning round real quick. Croissants are from France. They were created in Vienna, Austria in 1683 to commemorate the defeat of Turkish forces who were attempting to tunnel under the city, and were heard by bakers who were up in the early hours of morning beginning their trade. Vienna also gave us Danish pastry. Sorry, Denmark. French fries are Belgian, and Pulp Fiction was telling us the truth about the mayonnaise though it comes in many flavors, so think of it more as aioli. Philadelphia cream cheese was invented in New York, and don't bother ordering London broil in Britain. It's an American moniker for cheap top-round steak to make them sound fancier. On the flip side, Fig Newtons were created in Newton, Massachusetts. Monterey Jack cheese was invented by David Jack in Monterey, California. Worcestershire sauce... that's how it's pronounced, Worcestershire, is indeed from Worcester, England. Cantaloupes were first cultivated in Cantalupo, Italy. Sardines are plentiful around the island of Sardinia. Tangerine means from Tangiers, and Romaine lettuce did originate in Rome. Some food must be from a specific place in order to use its proper name. This is called terroir. Kobe beef, comes only from unbelievably pampered cows in Kobe, Japan. If your tequila doesn't come from Mexico, the distiller is violating the denomination of origin protection. Probably the best-known terroir is that Champagne that doesn't come from the Champagne region of France is simply sparkling white wine. But wait, you're probably thinking, it's labeled Champagne at the store, but it comes from California. That's thanks to an agreement between the United States and the European Union which, after two decades of negotiation, grandfathered in all producers who had been using region-specific names like Champagne, Burgundy, and Sherry. A lot of foods change their name when you get your passport stamped. What's French toast in America is Poor Knights of Windsor in England and Pont perdu or Lost Bread in France. Italy and America say arugula, whereas the British Commonwealth calls it rocket. They also use the name Swede for what us Yanks call rutabagas. The same goes with zucchini and courgettes, eggplants and aubergines. Don't get me started on biscuits and pudding. A little consistency would go a long way. I thought this country spawned the language, and so far nobody seems to speak it. Then there are foods that require the efforts of more than one country to bring them into existence. The more pedantic among us, this reporter included, know that sushi refers to the vinegared rice and not the fish. If we're really on a tear, we'll probably snub the inside-out California roll as not being sushi at all. And then we'll reach for a salmon roll, never knowing that we have the descendants of Vikings, not samurai, to thank for it. Hey, it's not easy thinking you're right all the time. Like the aforementioned taters and maters were to Europe, raw salmon went over like a lead dirigible in Japan. It was strictly not eaten until the mid-90s. Pacific salmon carries parasites like flatworms and cyst-producing myxazoans, which become epidemic in a salmon farming situation. Further, Japanese people just didn't like the color and smell of salmon and even the shape of a salmon's head. It just didn't look right to them, so on the whole, hard pass. In the mid-80s, the fishing industry of Norway found itself with a huge surplus of salmon, but not enough demand, so they needed to find a new market. This led to the formation of Project Japan, headed by Bjorn Erik Olsen, who should also get an award for Most Norwegian Name Ever. The goal of Project Japan was to convince the Japanese public that raw salmon was safe to eat, which would be analogous to trying to convince Westerners to eat raw pork on your say so. They persevered through 10 years of failed ad campaigns and high level business lunches with plates of salmon rolls left untouched. Finally, Olson landed a sale with a respected frozen food company, Nishi Rei, to get salmon sushi into grocery stores. With a familiar name attached to it, salmon finally began to gain traction. Before long, it had found its way onto the conveyor belts and carefully crafted plates of sushi restaurants across the country. What's more, the familiarity of Western diners with salmon aided in the introduction of sushi to Europe and North America. Salmon helped introduce sushi to the U.S., Allow me to introduce you to the newest members of patreon.com yourbrainonfacts, where all members are receiving all levels of benefit for the duration. Welcome and thanks to Jonathan Blade, Karen, Lori, Alicia, and Elizabeth, who all joined in the past month. And thanks to another reader who left a review of the Your Brain on Facts book, thus pleasing the algorithm so that it might suggest the book to more people. By the way, if you've been meaning to leave a review... Now's a great time. This one's actually a combo book review and podcast review. Wenped writes, As a science teacher, I find this book and podcast informative and engaging. I believe you'll find Moxie's meticulous attention to detail and brilliant use of segues entertaining and hypnotizing. Make it clear that this book will exceed your expectations. I like that the book includes pictures, an organized bibliography, and random facts within facts. And this next part they addressed to me directly. I discovered the Wyboff podcast while searching for random facts to lighten up my students' day amidst the COVID-19 pandemic. Little did I know you would lighten up my day as well. Thank you for your dedication and for giving us the pleasure of hearing your soothing voice. It is so gratifying to hear that this goofy thing I somehow spend 20 hours a week doing is making the crisis a little easier for people. So thank you very much, Wenped, for leaving a review. And thank you for noticing the bibliography. It required an entire excruciating week to organize. Modern-day wise man George Carlin once asked, Where is the blue food? I can't find the flavor blue. Green is lime, yellow is lemon, orange is orange, red is cherry. What's blue? There's no blue food. And don't say blueberry, because you know that stuff's purple. Outside of blue corn, you'd be hard-pressed to find blue food in nature, but walk down the candy aisle of your nearest grocery store, and one blue flavor pops up over all others. Not blueberry, even. Raspberry. But raspberries are red. So why do we color things blue when we flavor them raspberry? We have to go back to our childhood favorite freezer pops, like Otter Pops and Flavor Ice those glorious plastic tubes of frozen sugar water without which a summer is wasted. Manufacturers were having a difficult time making the colors that corresponded to cherry, strawberry, watermelon, and raspberry distinct enough to tell them apart. It got more complicated when the FDA banned red dye number two for causing severe reactions and potentially being carcinogenic. It would make for better copy if there were some terribly clever reason that food scientists went to blue next, but the simple reason is that they had blue coloring on hand and hadn't been able to use it yet. We also have to mention that the gold label company that makes icy slushies were also early adopters of blue raspberry, and possibly even the originators, depending on your source. And a side note, next time you need a science nerd laugh, check out the hashtag Overly Honest Methods where you'll find gems like this die was selected because the bottle was within reach, the experiment was left for the precise time it took us to get a cup of tea, and a modified protocol was implemented because a certain graduate student seems unable to follow simple instructions. A more recent food invention, the turducken just screams murka. For those who have somehow avoided it for the past decade, a turducken is a chicken inside of a duck inside of a turkey that is then roasted or deep-fried. It has given rise to masticable madness like a 12-bird nesting doll of a dish, very similar to what was served at Roman feasts and known as a farce, which could start with a dormouse and go all the way up to a cow. There's also the chirumple, a three-layered cake with a pie stuffed in each layer of cake. These foods inside foods are obvious examples, but you may be eating food inside food that you don't even realize. Take the four rectangles of happiness that are a Kit Kat bar, those chocolate-enrobed wafer cookies with chocolate filling. What the snappy ad campaigns never told us was that the filling inside KitKats is Kit Kats. Even the most finely-tuned production line will turn out a certain portion of unacceptable product. Rather than throw the defective units away or offer them as livestock feed, a common practice in candy manufacturing, Nestle grinds them up and uses them as filling for the next batch. While we're most familiar with the classic chocolate, Kit Kats are so staggeringly popular in Japan that they have been offered in over 200 different flavors, including green tea, strawberry cheesecake, wasabi, rum raisin, adzuki bean, and purple sweet potato. Now, one man's turducken is another man's culinary affront to God, and vice versa. Try to bear that in mind as we travel to Sicily to examine a most peculiar regional specialty, casa marzu. This is a cheese described as the most dangerous cheese in the world. Due to, what will soon be obvious, health implications, the sticklers at the European Union Food Safety Authority have banned casa Therefore, those wishing to eat it must go to the Italian black market. This delicacy is, mildly put, an acquired taste. Unless you're a maggot. They love it. How do we know? They're still in the cheese. Casa Marzu is made from sheep's milk on the island of Sardinia in the Mediterranean Sea. Step 1. Heat the milk and let it sit for about three weeks to curdle. Next cut off the crust that has formed. That done, the flies can get inside to lay their eggs. Move the cheese to a dark hut for about two months. During that time, the eggs will hatch into larvae and begin to eat the now rotting cheese. Now is the important part. It's what the larvae excrete that give the cheese its distinct, soft texture and rich flavor, like a very ripe gorgonzola. Congratulations, you now have Kasumarzu. May God have mercy on your soul. But now that you have it, what do you do with it? It's important for one to note whether the maggots are alive or not. Dead maggots are usually an indication that the cheese has gone bad. Where that line is exactly, I cannot say. Kasumarzu is to be consumed when the maggots are still alive. You'll want to close your eyes while eating it, not only to block out the sight, but also to stop the maggots jumping into your eyes. When bothered, the maggots can jump as high as 6 inches. Be sure you chew your food thoroughly as well, because the maggots can survive stomach acid for a short period of time. Serve with a moistened flatbread and a glass of strong red wine. Part of the Area of Media Network. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Adios, au revoir, au revoir, zen, my friends. Bye-bye. I'll be seeing you. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Kat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? and jethro box of oddities that is really mysterious join cat and jethro gilligan toth for the strange the bizarre the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities the webby award-winning box of oddities podcast from airwave media another snack one that's been with us since 1907 is also manufactured in a way that could prompt internet dwellers to misuse the word inception to describe it. The iconic chocolate taffy, an underappreciated part of trick-or-treat bags, the Tootsie Roll. According to the company's own website, the recipe calls for the inclusions of the leftovers from the previous day's batch. This is referred to as graining and is a process that continues to this day. Theoretically, there is a bit of creator Leo Hirschfeld's very first Tootsie Roll in every one of the 64 million Tootsie Rolls produced each day. It's like realizing that our bodies are made up from the elements that spread out through the galaxy after the Big Bang, but chocolatey. Tootsie Rolls also hold the distinction of having saved the lives of American troops during the Battle of the Chosin Reservoir during the Korean conflict. The entrenched Marines were outnumbered, outgunned, suffering from the below-zero temperatures, and running out of mortar rounds. They couldn't call for resupply because the area was heavy with enemy anti-air emplacements. Their supplies just got shot down. After two desperate days of waiting, the radio men had to risk it, using the code word Tootsie Roll to call for mortars. To their utter surprise, an airdrop came with cases and cases of literal Tootsie Rolls. While they still needed ammo, it turned out to be a blessing in disguise. The soldiers found the candy could be eaten frozen, unlike their rations, which gave them valuable calories. They also chewed the candy to soften it and used it, like putty, to patch bullet holes in their equipment, where the sub-zero winds froze it solid immediately. And though the division took heavy losses, their survival rate bordered on the miraculous for the circumstances those who made it out of the Chosen Reservoir credited the Tootsie Rolls with their survival and referred to themselves as the Chosen Few. For a more pleasant experience with cold, drinking a glass of ice water is a refreshing proposition, while drinking a glass of ice water with mint gum in your mouth feels like an open palm strike from a yeti. The same goes for those brave or foolish souls, like me, who like to chew up their Altoids. Why does mint possess this singular ability to make our mouths feel cold? The culprit is menthol, a chemical in mint-flavored things that essentially causes your brain to misinterpret its presence. The receptor of interest is a protein TRPM8, or Transient Receptor Potential Cation Channel, subfamily M, member 8. This is an ion channel, which, when open, allows sodium and calcium ions to enter. This causes an action potential, an electrical signal running down a neuron. Menthol causes the TRPM8 channel to open, the same way low temperatures do. When you eat something containing menthol, the TRPM8 channel opens, and your brain interprets the signal as the sensation of cold, making mint feel cold. So is the mint in toothpaste also responsible for turning a tasty sweet glass of morning OJ into a form of punishment? The credit or blame here goes to sodium lauryl sulfate. It is a surfactant, a substance that creates a satisfying froth by lowering the surface tension of your saliva and allowing bubbles to form. Sodium lauryl sulfate also suppresses the tongue's sweetness receptors and destroys phospholipids fatty compounds that inhibit the bitter receptors. With the sweet receptors out of commission, and the bitter receptors turned up to 11, orange juice loses all of its appeal. No pun intended. Recent research also shows that the fluoride in toothpaste may react with the acetic acid in the juice, but results to bolster this theory are limited. It should surprise no one that scientists aren't investing very much time or resources into solving this particular natural mystery. In the meantime, remember the old adage, Beer before liquor, never sicker. Toothpaste before orange juice, dead. If you're skipping the glass of OJ, how about a cup of Joe? A full 64% of Americans can't start their day without coffee, to the tune of 280 million cups a day, though our consumption pales in comparison to some other countries. France, Germany, and Switzerland drink about 50% more than the U.S., Sweden doubles our consumption. But the most prodigious coffee drinkers are in the land of lakes and midnight sun, Finland, where people consume nearly 10 kilos or over 20 pounds of coffee beans a year. Women drink only slightly less coffee than men in the U.S., an average of 1.5 cups a day versus 1.7 cups. But women are three times more likely to find themselves on a bathroom run after their coffee run. 53% of women report that coffee exonerates the bowels, as opposed to only 19% of men. The scientific reason for this is... unclear. It's not that researchers have no ideas. They have too many ideas, each as half-right as the last. Caffeine definitely plays a role, but it's only one part of an ensemble. Caffeine contains colon-stimulating agents like theophylline and xanthine, These create peristalsis, the wave-like muscle contractions in the intestines that move things along. We know about this increased muscle activity through the selflessness of study volunteers who agreed to the use of a probe during the study and to whom we owe our gratitude. However, decaf coffee also has a laxative effect, and other caffeine-containing products like energy drinks don't. Coffee contains over a thousand organic compounds, including multiple kinds of acid. A compound called chlorogenic acid triggers higher bile production and higher production in gastric acid. Exorphins in coffee, both regular and decaf, cause our body to release the hormones gastrin and cholecystokinin, which encourage movement of the intestines. Coffee is also high in magnesium, which can make people poop, and there are yet more potential causes, which will just have to go unnamed for now. As ubiquitous as coffee is today, Christian Europe almost never had it. It is widely believed advisors in the church considered coffee to be the bitter invention of Satan, undoubtedly because of its popularity in Muslim countries. However, upon tasting it himself, Pope Clement VIII declared, This Satan's drink is so delicious that it would be a pity to let the infidels have exclusive use of it. Or he may have said, This devil's drink is delicious. We should cheat the devil by baptizing it. While this is probably apocryphal and details are a bit sketchy, I'll go out on a limb and suggest that Pope Clement really did like the coffee, since there wasn't a papal bull against it, as there have been so many other things before or since. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. Food is as diverse as humanity, from seal meat in Alaska to vegetable biryani in India to balut in the Philippines and guinea pig in Peru. But at the same time, food is universal. We all need to eat to live. And more than that, food can nourish the spirit as much as the body. It can be a way to spend time with friends or to show someone you love them. But if you'll excuse me, I have some sourdough hamburger buns that I need to shape and get in the oven. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. And stay safe.